the name of the Father, and the name of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Most sacred heart of Jesus, immaculate heart of Mary, pray for us. St. Pius X, pray for us. St. Pius V, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Last month we began the talk on Vatican II. And towards the end of the talk I had mentioned to you that it was January 25th, 1959, that John XXIII, in the presence of a select group of cardinals, at St. Paul outside the Walls Basilica uh, in Rome announced uh, his program of his pontificate. Remember, he had just been elected Pope about three months before. And the program, he called it adjournamental, which means in English, a bringing up to date. He said he was going to open up the windows of the church to bring in the fresh air of the world. He told these cardinals that his pontificate was going to be characterized by what he called kindness and mercy. And it was not going to be a pontificate of condemnation or excommunication. Can't hear? Uh, we could turn it up a little bit more. How about that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so I was just saying about the pontificate of John the Twenty-Third. He was telling the select group of cardinals that his pontificate was going to be marked by a so-called kindness and mercy. There was going to be no severity towards those who would error. No more condemnations, no more excommunications. He then turned to the 18 cardinals and he wanted their advice. And I mentioned to you a lot of the information I'm getting is from a book called Letters from Vatican City was written by a redemptorist priest named Xavier Wren, who was actually a correspondent at Vatican II. He attended the entire Vatican II council. And he wrote this book, Letters from Vatican City, in which he talks about details before, during, and during the council. When John XXIII asked these cardinals for their advice, Xavier Wren said not a word of response was uttered to him. John the 23rd later expressed his disappointment. And I also mentioned to you that in 1961, just a few years before Vatican II actually convened, John the 23rd called four or five of the oldest cardinals to his um, office, as it were, in the Vatican there, and he asked them all to resign their positions as heads of congregations in Rome. 
In the previous conference, I mentioned there are 15 what we call Roman congregations. They take care of all different kinds of affairs in the church, and that is how the Pope rules the church through these congregations. For example, there's the Holy Office, which is charged with safeguarding faith and morals. That's the number one congregation. There's a congregation for religious, there's a congregation of the sacred rites, of the liturgy, etc. He called four or five of these cardinals in, and not one of them would resign. Because once they're made the head of a congregation, they're in for life. And not one of them would resign. Xavier Wren said they refused to resign. John the 23rd, and he doesn't even give their names. John the 23rd later said, Never in my life did I think anyone would refuse the Pope. Now, these Roman congregations, headed by these cardinals and others, make up what we call the Roman Curia. I mentioned this briefly last time, the Roman Curia. The Roman Curia simply means in English, the Roman court. And it is the the central government of the church that assists the Pope in ruling the entire church. It is not rash to presume that long before John the 23rd came to be John the 23rd, he had come to despise the Roman Curia. Remember, the Holy Office had a file on him as a young Father Angelo Roncalli. They had a file on him marked Modernus. So he despised the Roman Curia. And he actually uh, was not alone in this. There weren't a lot, but there were a few, especially among bishops of Germany, Holland, and France, that were calling for a restructuring of the Roman Curia. Some were even calling for an abolition of it. In the first chapter of his book, Letters from Vatican City, Xavier Wren actually says that in the wake of Pius X's condemnation of modernism, the Roman Curia was in desperate need of reform. Now, <clears throat> I want to go through this with you, because you, if you really want to understand why they call Vatican II, you have to understand just how powerful is the Roman Curia, and why John Twenty-Third despised it so much. Xavier Wren really ought to be thanked for all the information he has given us about this. He reveals in the first chapter of his book how effective the Roman Curia was 
in putting down the modernist movement among certain theologians in the church. And thus he writes that in the wake of Pius X's condemnation of modernism in 1907, he says the Curia was in need of a major reform. I want to read to you his own words of what he said about the Roman Curia, in particular the Holy Office, which, as I said, was charged with safeguarding the faith in morals. In fact, we, we use the expression, the deposit of faith. And the Holy Office was responsible to safeguard the sacred deposit of faith that has been divinely revealed by Christ through the apostles and given to the church. This is what Xavier Wren says. And these are his own words. The real misfortune, he begins, the real misfortune for the church resulting from the condemnation of modernism was the creation of a terrifying atmosphere of suspicion and distrust. Every thinker and every writer within the church who did not conform unhesitatingly to the static formulation of the church's teaching as expressed in Roman controlled manuals was suspected of heresy. Do you hear how he put that? In the wake of Pius X's condemnation of modernism, anyone, he says, who was writing about theology in the church who did not conform to church the way the church teaches her dogmas, who did not simply conform to the faith, was suspect of heresy. He goes on to say this, an oath against modernism was concocted. Uh, does that word concocted, doesn't that make a negative feeling on that? Right? Concocted. An oath against modernism was concocted, and he goes on to write, it is still imposed on all newly elected bishops. And each year, professors and lecturers in theology at pontifical seminaries and ordinary seminaries are required to take this oath every year. It gets even worse. Xavier Rin says, a secret society. Now, when we hear a secret society, we think pretty much instantly Freemasons, uh, Sons of Italy. I don't want to offend any of our Italian people out here, but the Sons of Italy. <laughs> so, he uses the expression, a secret society was formed in the church for ferreting ferreting out and delating to the Holy Office all the writings and the teachings of Catholic theologians and scholars in every field, but in particular, biblical studies, history, and philosophy. Okay. 
This was the anti-modernist network that I told you about that Cardinal Mary Delval had been running. He then goes on to say, that's all his negatives. That's his attack on the church. Then Xavier Wren says this, however, this is his bright light as it were. However, a group of determined churchmen rode out this tide of suspicion and condemnation. These scholars, prepared by the solid training given them at universities, especially in Fribourg, Switzerland, and Innsbruck, Austria, these scholars rode out this storm and they continued to do the work necessary to keep the church up to modern times. So he has, in other words, given us a very clear message. Number one, the church was gravely mistaken in how she dealt with modernism. Number two, but how fortunate we are, according to Xavier Wren, that there were some modernists. He doesn't call them that, but that's what they were. There were some modernists who rode off the storm and waited for their day. He then goes on to say, Especially in the 1940s, and I mentioned this to you at a conference already. In the 1940s, there were certain Dominican and Jesuit theologians, especially in France, who wanted to renew the vigor of the Catholic Church and deepen its impact, he says, throughout the world. But these men, and then he names three of them, and they are the three that I gave you in a conference. Henri de Bouard, Henri de Lubac, and Jean Danielou. Three French Jesuit theologians who came up with a program called The Return. The Return to the Sources of the Faith. Remember I said they wanted to restructure Catholic theology to teach theology not according to St. Thomas Aquinas, he was out. But they said, we want to go back to Scripture and the writings of the fathers of the church. And Thomas has to go. Which, as I said in that conference, it was nothing more than modernism resurfacing in universities. But these three men, and Xavier Wren also mentions a Dominican theologian who may sound familiar to some of you, his name was Yves Kungar. Xavier Wren says these men were the leaders of this group of so-called good theologians trying, trying to save Catholicism from the oppression of the Roman Curia. He says, but they were, uh, they were attacked, he says, by two Roman theologians. One of them, Father Reginald Garrigo Lagrange, a Dominican, and the other, a Jesuit theologian in Rome. And because of these two, 
As we mentioned in our last conference, Pius XII published his encyclical Humani Generis in 1950, which put an end to this movement of the 1940s, this return, they called it. And I think I mentioned to you, and Xavier Rin records it in his book, that Father Gary Lagrange was seen stalking through the cloisters of the Angelicum, which is the Pontifical University of St. Thomas in Rome. Father Gary Lagrange was seen stalking through the cloisters of the Angelicum with a brace of six scalps tucked under his belt. Other words, he had defeated these men. With the election of Angelo Roncalli, who's a priest, bishop, and a cardinal, and in all these different phases of his life, as it were, he sympathized with modernists. He sympathized with their tendencies, he sympathized with their doctrines, and he did this because he was a modernist. And he was determined upon his election that he was going to go to war, as it were, with the Roman Curia, especially the Holy Office. He was going to go against those who preserved the Catholic faith and morals. He was going to change and update how the church dealt with heresy. He was going to change the Roman Curia. But looking back now over the last 50 years, it wasn't just about changing the Roman Curia. It wasn't just about abolishing the Holy Office. It was about changing the Catholic religion. The modernists in the seminaries and the universities were attacking the faith by attacking St. Thomas. They were attacking Thomistic philosophy and theology. John XXIII was going to attack the Roman Curia. That was his front in his war on the church. As I mentioned, he soon discovered after his election two things. Remember I told you he was a very sanguine man, though? He had a very, he had a sense of humor. Did I tell you that last time? Like this, uh, he was, uh, he was walking down on a street in Rome sometime after his election, and he overheard two ladies talking, and one of them said, oh my, he is fat. John the 23rd was a very large man. And John XXIII turned and he looked at them and he said, My dear ladies, a papal conclave is not a beauty contest. <laughs> so he did have like a sense of humor. Right? He had a warm personality, if you will. Should I say winning personality? But he was a modernist. He discovered two things, though, after his election. He discovered, first of all, he could not 
not only make certain cardinals who were heading these congregations in Rome, in the Roman Curia, he couldn't make them resign, but he couldn't change them. He couldn't even change them. They were staunch. They were staunch and holding on to the Catholic faith as they had received it and how the church did things. Furthermore, it was a fact, and John the 23rd knew it, that the majority of Catholic bishops around the entire world were favorable and content with the Roman Curia. They were happy with it. They had no problem. It was a few. Germany, Holland, and France. Where we heard these grumblings against the Curia. The, the Catholic bishops, well I should say more correctly, who were ordinaries of a diocese. A bishop who is the head of a diocese is called an ordinary. And a bishop is a pastor of souls and he's an administrator of a diocese. They did not get involved in highfalutin theology. We talk more theological things than I think most of those bishops ever talked about before Vatican II. They were engaged they were embracing being pastors of souls, looking after their priests and their people and administering their diocese. They were not involved in major theological controversies because if there was a major theological controversy, it went right to the Roman Curia. They sent it there. When Father Leonard Feeney, for example, began his anti-baptism of desire crusade. Right? He started his little community up there and Archbishop uh, uh, Cushing of Boston was dealing with him and uh, correcting him and censoring him and all this stuff and, and, and Father Feeney would not give in to Archbishop Cushing. He would not obey him. Archbishop Cushing turned it over to the Roman, the Holy Office. And the Holy Office is always headed by the Pope, but it's run by a secretary. And the Holy Office contacted Father Feeney, and they said, you are to come to Rome, and you are to report on what, what you are doing. And Father Feeney replied, he couldn't afford a ticket. Pius XII personally informed him through his secretary that he would pay for all his expenses to go to Rome. Father Feeney refused to go. And he maintained his error of denying the church's teaching, which is proximate to the faith of the existence of the baptism of desire, and he even went into heresy. Father Feeney taught that a soul could be put into the state of grace by baptism of desire, but it would go straight to hell upon its death because it's water or damnation. That's a heresy. Council of Trent defined, you are in the state of grace, you have a right to go to heaven. Father Feeney refused to recant that. 
But point is here, the Roman Curia dealt with these kinds of things. The bishops did not. And furthermore, Pius XII, who had recently died, was so loved and respected. In fact, I was in Holy Nativity Chapel this past Sunday uh, in Clearfield, Pennsylvania. And after Mass, um, the seminarians who drove me were giving confirmation tests to some of the kids there. So I was waiting there, and the people, some of the men and people took advantage of it, and they all sat around me. <laughs> and we talked for about a couple hours, and one of them handed me a Time magazine from 1953. It was a vintage copy of Time magazine, 1953, and Pius XII on the cover. And I read through this article, and this article had nothing but admiration. This is Time magazine. It expressed an admiration, a respect, and how loved Pius XII was by, by the whole Catholic world. And it's true. It's true. He was loved and respected and revered especially by the bishops. John the 23rd, in order to get around the Roman Curia and these cardinals, and in order to change the bishops, he was necessitated to call Vatican II. That's why he had to call the council. If he was going to promote his so-called reform of aggiornamento, he was going to have to call a council. Because the curia was not going to let him get it through. And he had to have the bishops all come to Rome. Xavier Wren puts it this way in his book, Letters from Vatican City. He says, in the end, what seems to have convinced Pope John of the necessity of calling the council was not only the parochial outlook of most of the cardinals around him in the Vatican. And by the way, parochial means limited or narrow outlook. But, Xavier Wren says, the backward attitude of so many bishops around the world. They were good men, they were hard-working administrators. But these bishops, Xavier Wren says, knew nothing of the new spirit that was brewing in the minds and the hearts of new clergy. The Pope therefore decided to get all the bishops of the world to come together to educate them as to what the true status of the church must be in the modern world. And there you have it. That is how a giornamento was going to be uh, put into effect. The council was called to neutralize the Roman Curia, to change the bishops, and ultimately the clergy and the Catholic faith.
It was called to change the bishops, to change the church, and to remove St. Thomas and scholastic philosophy and theology from the classrooms. And that is what happened in the wake of Vatican II. Bishop Kelly said when he was studying philosophy at Catholic University of America in the late 1960s, he said he just made that cutoff because the philosophy he had was St. Thomas. And it was like a year or two later after he went on to the major seminary here in Huntington, Immaculate Conception, that they changed the philosophy at Catholic University of America. He had some very good Thomistic philosophers who taught the St. Thomas philosophy at Catholic University. In fact, he told us one story where in his course in metaphysics, uh, a the professor was talking and he, he, he talked about God. He mentioned God in relation to the, the course material. And this Franciscan, this young Franciscan seminarian, raised his hand. He said, Professor, this is philosophy. You can't talk about God in here. He said, you can't presume God's existence in philosophy. And the priest turned around. He said, well, in a room full of Catholic seminarians, I thought I could. <laughs> they were already starting. So, fortunately, though, certain members of the Roman Curia saw through the adjournamento of John the Twenty-Third. They understood that this council was not just an attack upon the church, the structure of the church government, but they understood. This is an attack on the divinely revealed teachings, the laws of the church, the liturgy, the mass, and the sacramental rites. Uh, I don't know if any of you remember Father Roy Randolph. Father Roy Randolph, who died in 1988. <clears throat> I'm actually very good friends with his adopted son, who lives in Toronto with his family today. And so no one's scandalized here. <laughs> Father Randolph was an Anglican minister. He was born in the Anglican church. He was an Anglican minister. He converted to Catholicism in 1960. When he had been the dean of the Anglican cathedral in Johannesburg, South Africa, he had adopted a young boy of 15 years of age in the early 1950s. And when he converted, when Father Randolph converted in 1960, this young man converted in 1960 as well. Uh, they were both baptized on the same day. They were confirmed the same day by the Catholic Bishop of Johannesburg. Uh, they both took the confirmation name of Joseph. And... Immediate, almost immediately after his conversion, Father Randolph left Johannesburg, South Africa, and he went to Rome. 
And Rome, he went to what's called the Beta College. The Beta College is a British seminary in Rome, and it's for delayed vocations to the priesthood. It's named for the Venerable Bede, who was a great saint of the British Church in the early 8th century. Father Randolph only stayed for about a year. And he only stayed for a year because there was all this talk about these changes that were coming. Changes that were going to be in the liturgy, in the mass. Changes in how priests were going to act and how they were going to carry on their ministry. And Father Randolph said, I just left the Anglican Church. And I didn't leave it to walk back into it. So he left. He left Rome. Uh, in fact, I never knew this. His son Roger told me, his adopted son Roger told me, when he was in Rome, Queen Elizabeth II came to Rome to meet, officially meet John XXIII. Father Randolph was actually picked as one of the gentlemen who was going to greet the Queen and Prince Philip when they came. And his son, Dr. Son Roger, he was there too. And he met the Queen, and then he met Prince Philip, who's like 95 years old, Prince Philip. But it's an interesting story. Prince Philip asked him, what are you doing here in Rome? And Father Randolph told him, I'm studying for the priesthood at the Beta College. And Prince Philip just said, hmm, jump the fence, eh? <laughs> But Father Randolph left Rome. He was there in 1961. He left because there was all this talk about what was good the council was going to do. He left. He took a job to teach uh, at a boys' school in Bogota, Colombia. But first he went to Spain, where in less than a year he mastered Spanish, and then he went on to Bogota. He spoke about 11 languages, actually, fluently. And then, long story short, he did eventually go back to the seminary in Seville. He was ordained in 1967. But uh, a priest convinced him, if you're going to fight this, you'll fight it more effectively as a Catholic priest. So, I want to now introduce to you some members here. Oh, I forgot to hit the screen here in all my talking few quotes from John the 23rd here, but I want now to introduce to you certain members of the Roman Curia who were the three, the three staunch members that opposed John the 23rd. Just a few quotes I gathered from him. And while Xavier Wren notes this in his book, calling them, in so many words, the arch-enemies of John the Twenty-Third, and how they were scorned by him. Um, I thought it would be helpful in our whole study here to understand who were these people. And here's the first one, Cardinal Alfredo Ottaviani. We'll have more to say about him later in a future talk. Cardinal Ottaviani was born in 1890. He died in 1979. 
He had as a most impressive lifelong service to the church. Xavier Wren, in his book, Letters from Vatican City, even talks about how impressive was this man's career in the church, even though he offers a number of criticisms of the cardinal in his talk. He, he begins, Xavier Wren says of Cardinal Ottaviani that he was the leading figure at the Vatican of a group of intransigents. Intransigence. He has these very colorful words. The word intransigent, it actually means this. It means unbending, inflexible, obdurate, iron-willed, stiff-necked, and pig-headed. And that's the word Xavier Wren uses to describe as a poke, Cardinal Ottaviani. He goes on to say, or should I describe the Cardinal as a prophet of doom, as John XXIII himself used in his description of Cardinal Taviani. Born in 1890 in Rome with the black dirt of Trastevere beneath his feet, Taviani was ordained a priest in 1916, a teaching career followed in Roman seminarian, seminaries and universities. He was never the pastor of a parish. He was never a, a parish priest. Learned in canon law, doctorates in philosophy, theology, and canon law, Ottaviani taught for 20 years. He was made a domestic prelate while working in the Secretariat of State, he was a disciple of Cardinal Nicola Canali. Cardinal Canali was actually the secretary to Cardinal Mary Dalval. In 1953, Pius XII elevated Ottaviani to the rank of Cardinal Deacon. Now, please understand at this time, they were named cardinals, but not necessarily consecrated bishops. But they were given the dignity of Cardinal. In 1959, Ottaviani was appointed the Secretary of the Congregation of the Holy Office by John XXIII. Interesting. In 1962, John XXIII ordered that all Cardinal deacons and Cardinal priests were to be consecrated bishops. And thus, Ottaviani was consecrated a bishop. Xavier Wren concludes by saying, the brilliant career of Cardinal Ottaviani can be summed up in three words. A curia man. A curia man. Meaning, he was a dedicated, devout priest member of the Roman Curia. Cardinal Ottaviani truly loved the church. He loved the Catholic faith. And he found himself obligated to defend it at the council, even though, as another historian of Vatican II says, he lost every battle. I want to mention to you 
two humiliating insults that were personally directed at this man. Mindful that at the time, he was the secretary of the Holy Office. These insults are recorded in a news article published by the Herald Tribune Services of November 12, 1962, and in a book written by a Ralph McErnie titled, What Went Wrong with Vatican II? The Crisis Explained. The first insult is that in the early months of 1962, while preparations were underway for Vatican II, Cardinal Ottaviani notified the Superior General of the Jesuit Order in Rome. And he informed him that one of his priests, by the name of Karl Rahner, whom we shall meet shortly, Karl Rahner had been placed under Roman pre-censorship. And why? Because Karl Rahner was suspect of modernism. And Ottaviani, as the Secretary of the Holy Office, notified the superior general of the Jesuits in Rome and told him, one of your priests is suspect of modernism. And now that he's been officially censored by the Holy Office, he was no longer permitted to publish books. He was no longer permitted to lecture in Catholic universities. But that year, Despite the fact that he was censored, suspect of modernism, and being investigated furthermore by the Holy Office, John XXIII personally invited Karl Rahner to attend Vatican II and to attend as an expert and advisor at the Council. As Father Francis Fenton once said, there is something rotten and it is not in Denmark. <laughs> Karl Rahner joined one of the many committees. He attended the council as an expert advisor and the personal theologian of the Cardinal Archbishop of Vienna, Austria. And there was nothing Ottaviani could do to stop this. Okay, so that that was the that was the first insult that was given to Cardinal Ottaviani. The second insult, which took place during the council and was far worse. And this happened during the October thirtieth, nineteen sixty two session. Which session was concerned with what were going to be the changes to the holy sacrifice of the Mass that the Council was calling for that had to be made? 
All the speakers were allowed 10 minutes. Remember, there's about 2,000 people, bishops of the council. And all the, uh, the speakers were allowed 10 minutes. Cardinal Ottaviani took the floor, and he was speaking. And upon Ottaviani passing the 10-minute mark, Cardinal Eugene Tisserant, who was the Dean of the Council Presidents, showed his watch to the Council President of the day, Cardinal Alfrank of Utrecht, Holland. Ottaviani was so engrossed in his topic, he went on condemning the proposed changes that were being discussed on the Council floor. Here are the words of Cardinal Ottaviani when they cut him off. He said, Are we seeking to stir up wonder or perhaps scandal among the Catholic people by introducing changes in so venerable a right that has been approved for so many centuries and is now so familiar to our Catholic people and clergy? The right of Holy Mass, Cardinal Ottaviani says, should not be treated as if it were a piece of cloth to be refashioned according to the whim of each generation. When Ottaviani continued to speak, when he reached 15 minutes, Cardinal Alfrank rang a warning bell. When Ottaviani kept speaking, and as if, as if it were pleading to the bishop's presence, Al Frank singled, signaled a technician who switched off the microphone. After tapping the microphone to determine it was off, the half-blind Ottaviani stumbled back to his seat in humiliation. And as he did, there was a scattered applause in the council hall by members of the council fathers who held he had gone on too long. Scandalized by the reaction of his fellow council fathers, Ottaviani boycotted the next six working sessions of Vatican II. We will have cause to speak more about Cardinal Ottaviani later on. But that is how they treated the secretary of the Holy Office. The next cardinal is Giuseppe Siri. Born in 1906, he died in 1989. He was the Archbishop of Genoa from 1946 to 1987. He was mostly known for his strong, outspoken condemnation of atheistic communism, especially the Italian communists and socialists. And secondly, his opposition to the radical reforms of Vatican II. 
Now, I just want to mention very briefly without engaging too much into it, there is something today called the Cardinal Siri Theory that some perhaps are familiar with. The Cardinal Siri Theory is basically this. Siri was considered a strong candidate in the 1958 papal conclave held to elect the successor of Pius XII. On the evening of the 26th of October, the first day of the conclave, apparent white smoke was seen coming from the chimney of the Sistine Chapel, a traditional signal to the crowds in the square outside that the Pope has been elected. But no announcement was made And about half an hour later, the smoke turned black, indicating there was no result. The Vatican radio corrected the report. There are some who say the white smoke was simply a mistake. There are a few who contend that someone had been elected. But due to conspiracy, he was set aside. And the man they claimed who had been elected was Cardinal Giuseppe Siri. But he was pushed aside. There is no certain, there is no valid proof that anyone has offered that this is true. There is no competent person now who can even substantiate this claim. Because what the Cardinal Siri theory, when all is said and done, that is promoted by certain people, even among some traditional Catholics, is that Cardinal Siri had been elected Pope, he took a name, but he went undercover, and then he named a successor. And there's actually a small group in Genoa, Italy today that say they follow the real Pope. And they have a list, as it has been shown to me, that this real Pope, who's nameless, who succeeded Cardinal Siri, he has formally excommunicated all of us. All societies in Pius X, societies in Pius V, we're all excommunicated. <laughs> And he's also excommunicated all the liars. The only Catholics right now are in Genoa, Italy. (laughs) I just wanted to mention that because there are sometimes there is no little talk about this. I remember some man saying we have, who was proposing this, that Cardinal Siri had named a successor and Father Jenkins actually said to this man for all we know it was a gondola driver in Venice (laughs) Father's point was not to be sarcastic Father's point was to say there's no proof there's no evidence and there's no one who can give competent substantial claims to any of this The third cardinal 
who was the chief enemy of John XXIII in the Vatican, was Cardinal Ernesto Ruffini. Born in 1888, he died in 1967. He was the Archbishop of Palermo, consecrated by Pius XII in 1945. He was then named Cardinal. Time magazine, September 14, 1962, said of Cardinal Ruffini, he was a most stern opponent of the reforms called for by John XXIII. And Xavier Wren wrote of him in his book that Cardinal Ruffini was the kind of man who had forgotten nothing that he was taught but since becoming a teacher himself, he has refused to learn anything new. And by those words, of course, he means Cardinal Ruffini was a staunch Catholic, and he would not embrace the modernism. Xavier Wren goes on to list a few other names of cardinals and the Curia. But despite the deafening silence of the 18 cardinals on that January 25, 1959, John XXIII called the council, despite the resistance as well as the cardinals of the Roman Curia. He said the opening date was going to be October 11, 1962. And in the meantime, extensive preparations had to be done. They prepared about three years for this. Xavier Wren tells us that theologians from around the world were personally summoned to Rome by John XXIII, as I mentioned, Karl Rahner. They were divided into committees to prepare for the 21st Ecumenical Council of the Church. Fag Xavier Rin says that over 800 theologians and experts were called to Rome to prepare Vatican II. And in less than three years, they sifted and codified a mountain of facts relating to ecclesiastical affairs in the modern world, covering everything from rigid norms of canon law to the price of beeswax in Nigeria. By that he meant they covered everything. And among the experts, personally called by John XXIII to Rome, to help prepare this committee, there were six in particular that I want to introduce to you. Carl Rahner, as we've already mentioned. Carl Rahner was born in 1904. He died in 1984. He was a Jesuit. Immediately after Vatican II, it was his textbooks in theology that replaced the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas 
in Catholic seminaries. In fact, Roger Randolph gave me Father Randolph's theology books from the Seminary of Seville in Spain, where Father studied. They're all in Spanish. I let Father Newman have them because he practices his Spanish. I didn't know, and I didn't even look at the books, I just handed them to Father Newman. One of the seminarians uh, said he's been, he had been looking through one of the books that Father Newman let him. He's studying some Spanish on the side a little bit. And he brought the books, he said there was something funny in the book that he had been reading in the Spanish. I, I can't remember it exactly. I said, bring that book to theology class. I teach the theology at the seminary. So bring that book to, to the next class. I look at it, and it was, there's Father Randolph's name. He had written his name in there. And I look at the author of the book is Carl Lohner. Carl Lohner. And then I remembered Father Randolph saying that during the day they were given this garbage by Carl Rahner to read. And he called Carl Rahner, Father Randolph called him a complete and total heretic. He said, day by day we had to go through this garbage. He said, but at night, I had to study on my own the theology of St. Thomas. Carl Rahner's books, as I say, his theology replaced St. Thomas after Vatican II. Your pronunciation is as good as mine on this one, right? Schulebeck's? 1914 to 2009, a Dominican. His chief opposition to the church was to the constitution of the church. The constitution of the church, by that we're talking about, the Pope is the supreme head, there's a hierarchy of bishops, clergy, and faithful who are beneath. He opposed this. He advocated what he called Episcopal collegiality. He was outspoken and condemned the dogma of papal infallibility. He had been censored before Vatican II. He's another one who was silenced by Pius XII, but who was personally invited to Vatican II by John XXIII. To oppose the divine constitution of the church, by the way, is to oppose Christ himself, because Christ established it. Marie-Dominique Chenoux, 1895 to 1990, a Dominican. His theology books were personally condemned by Pope Pius XII and the Holy Office in 1945. He was forbidden to write, to teach, to lecture. After Vatican II, his books were embraced by universities and seminaries. He was also personally called to be an expert at Vatican II. Yves Kungar, 1904-1995. 
He wrote a book titled The True and the False Reform of the Church. It was condemned by the Holy Office in 1950. It was put on the Roman Index of Forbidden Books. Eves Congar was forbidden to teach in 1954. But he was personally invited by John XXIII to be an expert at the council. And in the wake of the council, he became most influential in promoting the false ecumenical movement with non-Catholic churches. In 1994, a year before his death, John Paul II named him a cardinal as a reward for his lifelong service, destruction of the faith. Hans Kuhn Hans Kuhn, 1928, he's still alive. In 1979, Hans Kuhn was removed from the Catholic faculty of the University of Tübingen in Germany. But he was still allowed to function as a priest. He joined the Protestant faculty of another university but he was still functioning as a Catholic priest in a parish. He publicly rejects the dogma of papal infallibility, among other things. He rejects the divine constitution of the church. He criticized John Paul II in 2003 when John Paul II beatified Pope Pius IX. Hans Kuhn called it a degenerative act, going against all the progress made by Vatican II. He was called to be an expert at Vatican II. Publicly taught heresy. He was not excommunicated. He was just told you can't. You are no longer a Catholic theologian, but he can still function as a Catholic priest. The last one, Joseph Ratzinger. That's how he dressed at Vatican II. That's his famous Vatican II suit. He went to Vatican II. They determined what he called himself a liberal theologian. But after 1968, it is said he had his awakening. He had to defend Catholic teaching, but at the same time that he said, I have to defend what the church has always taught, at the same time he promoted and promoted the reforms of Vatican II. He was an advocate of freedom of religion and ecumenical dialogue. In 1981, John Paul II named him the Prefect of the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, formerly known as the Holy Office. Press, modern press, would refer to him as the Vatican Rottweiler, because he was so staunch, they said, in defending the faith. In fact, they blame him 
They blame Ratzinger as the one who influenced John Paul II to come out and absolutely say women cannot be priests. And hence, the faith was being preserved as it was being destroyed around the whole world. All these men have one thing in common. Modernism. Before Vatican II, they all favored that new theology movement, which Pius XII condemned in 1950. During Vatican II, they advocated modernism. After Vatican II, they advocated modernism. Remember I told you in our first conference in October, a modernist can be liberal and at the same time conservative. He can be branded either way. All of these men were implicitly condemned by Pius XII's encyclical letter, Humani Generis. They were all against the Roman Curia. And they were all called to Rome by John the 23rd in 1959, 1960 to prepare for Vatican II. I'm going to stop there, but <clears throat> you know, I want to just remind you, because we're talking about some very horrible things that happen, but that's the whole purpose of these talks, is to inform you of what really happened. But I just want to remind you that the head of the church is our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. Very often people talk the Pope's the head of the church. Pope is the visible head of the church. We give, in theology, we, we say that. We give that title to the Pope, visible head of the church. But the head of the Catholic Church is Christ. He's the head of the church. We have to remember as we're going through these things, that just as he said, as our, as our Lord said to Pontius Pilate on that first Good Friday, and Pilate said to him, speak to me. Know you not that I have power to crucify you or save you? And what did our Lord say to Pilate? The last words he spoke to Pontius Pilate. He said, you have no power over me except what is given you from above. And we have to be mindful as we go through this history of what has happened to his church. Because it is his church, it's not our church in that sense of the term. We have to be mindful that just as they could not do anything to him unless he allowed it, they can't do anything to the church unless he allows it. And in his infinite divine wisdom, there is a reason for this. And somebody asked me just recently, why has it allowed, why has it been allowed to go on so long? And I said, you know, uh, not too long ago, I, I was thinking about that with this one thing after another, coming from this man now, occupying, he doesn't even live in the Vatican, 
right? Francis, one thing after another coming out of him. How, how, why is this being allowed to go on so long? And then I read the second chapter of St. Peter's second epistle, where St. Peter actually wrote that epistle to prepare the Christians in Rome and other parts of the empire for the coming persecution of Nero. And St. Peter reminds Christians, he reminded Christians then, and it's a reminder for all of us to the very end of time, that God allows these things to happen because he gives the good an opportunity to practice virtue and gain greater merits for heaven, persevering to the end in our faith and our belief in the state of grace. And at the same time, St. Peter says, he gives the wicked time to repent. And that is what I ever have reminded our priests at Immaculate Heart Seminary. We cannot stop this. We can't. But what we can do is by our daily holy hour of reparation, we can obtain grace, and by our preaching, and by our just going out, we can affect people and bury the seeds of faith in them, and we can try to save as many souls as possible. Because the war is the war is over. Our Lord has already won. It's up to us now to save as many people as possible. And that's what we do try to do.